Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is September the 24th, and as always in 2020, uh, indeed many years before that, it's Donald Trump dominating the headlines today. Now he's not so sure that uh, he's in favor or sympathetic to this idea of a peaceful transfer of power. America stumbles more and more towards perhaps martial law or civil war or some sort of destruction of democracy. We've been warning about this on the show now for several months. We had Clarissa Ward, the CNN chief correspondent on last week, talking about how America might become Syria. One guy who has been warning about this for years, many, many years, is Tony Schwartz. Tony was the co-author of Donald Trump's uh, Art of the Deal. Um, he's the guy we have to blame, perhaps, in many ways, for the for the for the Trump phenomenon, for the for the Trump brand. Uh, and uh, after that book, he's become one of Trump's most prominent critics. Uh, when he was elected in 2016, uh, Tony famously said that he's the most uh, talking about Trump, Trump's the most dangerous human being I've ever met. And he warned about Trump, if he was elected as president, would end the free press and declare martial law. At the time, people once didn't perhaps take Tony's warning so seriously. Today, they seem all too prescient. Uh, Tony now has a new book out. Uh, a book called Dealing with the Devil, My Mother, Trump, and Me, which is part confessional, uh, part self-analysis, uh, and part uh, political critique of Trump. Uh, Tony, you called it, didn't you? Who Trump would turn out to be? Uh, yes. And and I, I don't take uh, oh, too much credit for that, because anybody who's spent a half hour with Trump uh, very quickly realizes who he is, that he's a um, a, a quintessential sociopath, psychopath, sociopath are interchangeable terms at this point, but somebody without conscience or empathy, and in the absence of conscience or empathy, anything goes. So, uh, yeah, it was interesting to hear you say when I said the things I did about martial law and having his finger on the nuclear button and how terrifying I found that it did get dismissed at the time. It, it was uh, considered to be overwrought and come on. And uh, we are so amazingly close to some of the worst imaginable outcomes right now with Trump. And should he be reelected, uh, almost surely he will move much, much further in the direction of autocracy. Uh, it's funny, Tony, when uh, when your book, uh, The Art of the Deal, came out, uh, you've made it clear that you regret doing the book and you're very embarrassed with it and it essentially ruined your career as a very promising journalist. No one took you very seriously after the book, although you made a lot of money. Uh, some of the reviews were actually quite sympathetic. You note in your new book that 
uh, Galbraith trashed it in the New York Review of Books, but the New York Times reviewer said Trump's make uh, Trump saying Trump. It was really uh, it was really Schwartz. Trump Schwartz makes one believe for a moment in the American dream again. It's like a fairy tale, uh, and there is something about that in in Trump, isn't it? It's this fairy tale that quite quickly turns into a nightmare. Were you trying when you wrote the art of the deal to create a fairy tale narrative? It's a complex question. Um, I was first and foremost trying to uh, tell a story that would serve, do the job that I was asked to do, which is to put the best presentation of this young kind of second level real estate developer into the best light that I could. Uh, as I look back now, I realized that while I understood that there was a tremendous disparity between what he was saying to me about a given deal, which is what I was writing about, and what the people who were involved in that deal were saying, because I was talking to them as well, was very different. So I was pretty clear that Trump uh, had no particular respect for the truth. What I didn't realize, um, really until he he ran for president and I threw myself back into looking into this era, is that almost everything he was saying to me was untrue uh, around the art of the deal, as almost everything he says today is untrue. And uh, so when Christopher Lehman Hout, that's the New York Times reviewer who you were quoting and who I I look out my window right here, uh, I, I look into, he's, he's unfortunately passed, but I look into his home. Uh, when he called it a fairy tale, it strikes me that he was more accurate than he knew. You know, I've, I've suggested that this book ought to be reclassified as fiction, as a novel, and there is no question that it invents a portrait of Trump radically distant from who he is. Your as I said, your new audio book, um, Dealing with the Devil, My Trump, Trump and Me, is partly a confessional. Uh, you've, um, you've said quite publicly before that you regret writing the book. But what I find very interesting about this book, I didn't actually listen. I read it. I know the book might be coming out in text, but at the moment, it's only available on Audible and, and, and certainly well worth a listen. Fascinating uh, self-portrait and analysis of both America and Trump. What I found particularly interesting about the book um, is your confession about your mother, this dominant figure in your life. And you compare your relationship with your mom with Trump's relationship with his father, very dominant, destructive um, and very dark personalities. Tell me about your mother. Yeah, so. Uh... And, I, and I do have one photo which comes with which a caveat one? that uh, apparently you look quite happy here when, in fact, you were very rarely happy with uh, with your mom. Yeah, it's, it's it's kind of a funny nostalgia when you asked me to look for a picture. This is the only one I could find, and it's probably the the happiest uh, of, of all times that uh, occurred with her. I mean, it's just very unusual that we appear to be getting along swimmingly. Um, but, what were you doing? Uh, Playing tennis? You weren't swimming. Yes. No, 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 no. Getting along swimmingly. No, I'm teasing uh, you. Uh, yes, you, yeah, you look it. like you look like we're, a mixed you look like a mixed doubles couple in Southern exactly, California. Exactly. Exactly. Um, my mother was a very complex woman. She was an amazing uh, social activist. She had a huge role in 
uh, bringing black kids into uh, previously all white colleges when she was just in her early 20s. She ended up founding an organization called Catalyst that ended up being a, from 1962 on, an advocate for women in the workplace. So she had a progressive um, influence in the world and an effectiveness that was uh, really extraordinary and inspiring. At home, she was a nightmare. Um, she was, uh, as you started to suggest before, she was an incredibly critical person. You know, the most powerful thing that she did or negative thing or traumatizing thing that she did with me is something that so many parents do, mostly inadvertently, mostly because they've got their own issues, but it was to make me feel I wasn't good enough, to make me feel in many ways I was bad. And to recover from that, I think the most essential thing for a human being after food and shelter is to feel loved, is to feel accepted. To the degree that you don't, and don't when you're very young, when you're most vulnerable, you will struggle with that forever unless you address it. And even when you address it, it's very hard to address. So an interesting thing, Andrew, is that I really took, in particularly in the aftermath of writing The Art of the Deal, the exact opposite path of Trump. And it revolves around each of our relationships to the truth. So for Trump, it was the truth isn't good enough. And I am in charge of deciding what's true. So I will tell any lie I want in order to propagate the image of myself that I want to get across. For me, it was precisely the opposite. It was how do I actually have the courage to look at the truth about myself? And by doing so, to be able to embrace all of who I am, for better and for worse. And that has proved, particularly in the last half decade, to be a remarkable transformational experience because when you really accept all of who you are, you have nothing left to defend. And when you're not defending, when you're not defending your value, you are freed up to contribute more value in the world. That's what happened to me. Trump almost led me to the Dharma. Yeah, and uh, I found the most memorable and moving part of your new audiobook, Dealing with the Devil, not so much your analysis of w what a miserable childhood you had because your mother was such a, a, a dangerous character, perhaps in a, in, a, in, a, in a Trumpian sense, but how you not so much turned against her, but were willing eventually to stand up to her and to tell her the truth about yourself and the relationship with her. This was very moving. It was in a series of letters. And then, I don't know, tragically or otherwise, she died. You were never really able to build any kind of relationship. Uh, I I'm wondering, do you think there was ever a moment in Trump's life where he, 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 he even flirted with the idea of writing a similar letter to his father? Here's the most unequivocal answer I can give. No freaking way. Trump is, <laughs> Trump is the least introspective man on earth today. He's incapable of looking inside. It's way too terrifying. 
And he has invented, not only did I unfortunately help to create an image of him that was vastly more uh, virtuous than he deserved, but he himself tells himself a, a story that is fictional. He doesn't have contact very often with the truth. He moves between a grandiosity and vast insecurity. That's He's back and forth between feeling he's better than everyone and he's worse than everyone, but he's never conscious that he thinks he's worse than everyone. You pick it up in how desperately he needs to announce himself and promote himself. You pick it up in his anger and rage against other people and putting them down. But he himself never confronted the reality about his relationship with his father, which was, it was an abusive relationship. His father was, and Mary Trump says this in her book, his, his niece, his father was a psychopath. In fact, I've now used the word psychopath or sociopath twice, once to define Trump and once to define his father, probably also could be said for his grandfather who ran whorehouses in Alaska and, um, you know, lied and cheated his way through his business life. So there is a kind of genetic passage for Trump of the absence of conscience. And in the absence of conscience, in the absence of empathy, all you want to do, all Trump wants to do is to dominate, is to win. Because there are only two choices in life to Trump. And I know this feeling. I'm, thank God I'm, I don't feel it so much anymore. There are only two choices. It's a binary world. You either win or you lose. You're right or you're wrong. And to lose is to be decimated. To lose is to be a failure. That's what his father told him. And he took it hook, line, and sinker. So no, Trump never considered writing anything to his father or to his mother about the failure of their parenting. There was an interesting moment uh, in the last presidential debates between Hillary and, and, and Trump when they were asked at the end uh, to suggest one thing about their opponent that they thought was acceptable. I, I don't remember what Trump said. He probably said nothing about Hillary. But I remember Hillary saying, well, Donald Trump's not such a bad family guy. When he said that, I assumed it was because her daughter was friendly with Ivanka and somehow he she had picked up the notion that he wasn't an appalling father. Is Trump in in uh, I know in your book and in, in the new audio book, you suggest he's a very absent father. But clearly there's some relationship between him and his kids because they could have like Freddie Trump, his brother, they could have just disappeared. They could have just done a deal and gone to live their own lives. Or are they just terrified of the guy? Is he? Uh, Donald Trump, is he Fred Trump 2.0 in terms of his family, do you think? Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> Without any question. Um, you know, first of all, uh, when to go back to what I was saying earlier, when you're youngest is when you're most defenseless. And Trump's relationship with his kids when they were very young was non-existent. I mean, he just didn't, he, he paid literally no attention to them. It was as if, as if they didn't exist. And of course, for any child, even when you have, and maybe especially when you have a neglectful or an abusive parent, you want that parent's love even more. So to this point that it looked as if maybe Hillary, Hillary was onto something when she said, oh, your kids aren't so bad. No, what the reason is kids didn't 
uh, rebel is because Trump didn't give them room to rebel. First of all, it was very clear he would cut them off 100% if they didn't follow in every way what he wanted them to do. Um, and that cutting off would include not just his love, but his money. And look, these kids grew up in incredible luxury, used to having everything that they materially could possibly want. And Trump, basically, they're hostages, those kids. And by the way, they're the fourth generation of sociopaths. So in the Trump lineage. So Ivanka and the man she married, Jared Kushner, who's now a member of the family, and <laughs> Donald Jr. all strike me as people with no conscience, people with no frame of reference but their own advancement. In your in your audio book, um, uh, the, the, the political is the familial. I think, or the family and politics get intertwined. The book starts, uh, the, the audio book starts very darkly, uh, dealing with the devil, with your awful childhood and your relationship with your mother. And it ends on a very bright note with this very intimate and physical, close, physically close relationship you have, not only with your, your, your daughters, but with your grandchildren. Um, can we extend this family relationship into the political, when we begin to try to make sense of Trump's relationship with his followers, Tony. When I was reading your book, it suddenly occurred to me that Trump's relationship with his followers is in some ways similar to the relationship you had with your mother in the, in the context of the power he seems to hold over them. Uh, I, I want to show the, the, the front page of... Uh, the, the front page of the, the New York Times today, it says, without criticizing Trump, GOP affirms a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, what, again, it's suggesting is that the GOP broadly is terrified of this guy, Trump, in the way that you were terrified of your mother and in the way that Donald Trump was terrified of, of, of Fred Trump. Is, is American politics, and particularly Trump's relationship both with the GOP and his following, is it best understood in these familial philosophical context? Well, I think that's a really good observation and an interesting one. I think Trump is an abusive parent. He's not just an abusive parent to his children, but to America. He's classically that. And the response of Americans, and I say this about both his supporters and about his uh, opponents and resistors, his response, they, they, they are traumatized. We are traumatized. You know, there's a there's individual trauma. Basically, trauma is when demand exceeds your capacity to deal with it. It's when you feel so helpless and out of control that you're overwhelmed by it. And I think in terms of his followers, look, first of all, followers or supporters, the way Trump operates is he keeps coming at you. He comes at you and at you and at you. He has the energy of the devil. If there's one data point that suggests that there's something devilish about him, it's that energy. God knows where he gets it from. It must be the devil, I think. <laughs> well, you know, and I'm not much of a believer even in the concept of a devil as a singular entity, meaning I think people are generally speaking very complex and they have a virtuous side. They have a devilish side. They have a her child, they have a very functional adult, they have a, a defender. We are multiple selves. 
But in the case of uh, Trump, I think remarkably, and this is only possible really, I think, among sociopaths, among people who don't have a conscience, I only think he got the devil part. He didn't get the complexity. You know, Trump, Trump himself says that he is the same person he was fundamentally at the age of seven. Now, think of saying that. You're basically saying my development got arrested when I was seven years old. That's true of him. And it's a measure of his lack of reflectiveness that he thinks he can say that and it's okay. No, that's not okay. Tony, the, the ancients were very good on these tyrannical father figures. They always argued that the only way to get rid of them, and the Bible was rich in these narratives as well, the only way to get rid of them is to kill them because they're not reformable. How do we kill Trump? Do we do it metaphorically? Or, or, or may we have to, like a Mussolini or a Ceausescu, drag him out into the town square and shoot him? Well, we don't have a world that I, at least as I understand it, that would drag Trump out into the town square and shoot him. So let's let's put that aside. That's just not something I can see happening. The way, quite obviously, to bring Trump down is to vote him out. But it's not just to vote him out. It's to vote him out by such a substantial margin that he is kept from doing the very things he is thinking about all the time now and that he reflected yesterday when he said, I won't commit to a peaceful transformation of power. First of all, I don't hold great hope in Mitch McConnell saying that he will not allow that to happen, meaning that he will ensure a peaceful transfer of power. It is possible to me that if this election is clearly Biden won and Trump disputes it, that because Biden's in a position to win and therefore Trump won't have power, maybe McConnell will come out from under his rock and his terror and, and, and support a peaceful transition. But it is by no means guaranteed that that will happen. And I believe that, that Trump um, is going to do every imaginable thing he can outside the law to try to retain the presidency for a couple reasons. Number one, he loves the power. Number two, he's terrified of being out of office because there are very high odds that he gets indicted, convicted, and imprisoned for a range of crimes that we know now he has committed. So I think Trump is going to do anything that he possibly can to stay in office. It's as if and this is generally true with Trump. It's not just the election. It's as if you have two football teams on a field. You have our team and you have Trump's team. And we're supposed to play a game to see who's who will be the victor. Except the Trump team has said, the one thing we won't do is play by any rules. So yeah. we'll run outside the lines. We'll beat each other. We'll beat the team up if we're getting a pile. We'll do anything we have to to win. That's not a fair fight. And we are not facing a fair fight. So to me, this is one of history's great inflection points that the future of, for sure, the United States, but I would argue the world in light of things like climate change, hangs in the balance with this election. And if Trump is to win, 
I have severely limited hope for this country ever being remotely what it has been up till now. Flawed, but also, uh, you know, struggling to maintain a democracy for many, many years. I don't see it continuing. I do not see it. The end, Tony Schwartz, of the American fairy tale, although some people would suggest it never really existed. Uh, Finally, uh, Dealing with the Devil, as I said, your new Audible original book is, is really a great listen and a great insight into your remarkable life. Uh, and of your relationship with your family. How do these 40% of Americans or 45% of Americans who are weaned to the devil, how do they get off him? If there are people watching this who kind of agree with what you say, but don't like Biden, don't like the Democrats, and are thinking to themselves, well, I don't particularly like Trump. He doesn't seem a very reputable person, but he essentially stands for what I believe in. In other words, they're like you were for much of your life in your relationship with your mother. How do they wean themselves off the devil? Well, I don't want to be overly optimistic about that. If we take the 40% of Americans who are Trump's pretty rock solid base, um, I don't see great hope for converting them either uh, in terms of who they vote for or as human beings. Uh, May sort of makes me sound like I'm repeating the deplorables. But here's the thing. I think what uh, the the evolutionary leap that we need to make as a species in order to survive is to be willing to face the truth, to be willing to take responsibility. What's my role in this? You know, and I run a company called the Energy Project, and we go into big organizations and help leaders grow and help take care of uh, employees. And we ask three questions to every leader. We ask, what are you not seeing in any given circumstance? What else is true? And what is your responsibility in this? And the core of the Trump base is not willing to take responsibility for anything themselves. They reflect what Trump himself so promotes, which is to be aggrieved all the time about what they're not getting. Now, Trump has perhaps as little right to be aggrieved based on what life has made possible for him as any human being on earth. But because that internal feeling is one of such incredible emptiness, And so many of the people who depended on their identity for external, they depended on external manifestations, you know, that they owned two cars, that they had a certain job, that they earned an amount of income. Because that came into such uh, trouble for people, because that, uh, you know, the, the society changed in such a way that working class white people were no longer middle class, the aggrieved feeling has superseded for so many people the, impl- the impulse to take responsibility. What, is it, what does it actually mean, Andrew, to take responsibility? It means you have the courage to own it yourself and you have the humility to recognize that you don't have it all figured out and that you're not automatically right and that you are a complex human being. And as I said at the, at the beginning of this, when you can get there, 
you're not aggrieved anymore because you have nothing left to defend. It's really, this is where I'll leave it. Um, it's really the equivalent of, we call it the energy serenity prayer. Invest your energy in what you have the power to influence. Don't squander your energy on what you can't influence and have the wisdom to know the difference. That's taking responsibility. That's what Trump has nearly destroyed in this country. There you have it. So um, uh, Tony Schwartz, who has indeed taken responsibility, people on the podcast won't see this photo. It's uh, it's uh, it's Tony and Trump at the uh, at the and Cy Newhouse in uh, at the uh, at the party for the uh, Art of the Deal book. Uh, here, of course, is uh, Tony and his mother. And here we have Tony dealing with the devil, his attempt to take responsibility and get beyond that. Uh, Tony, people should, of course, read Dealing with the Devil. Well, not read, sorry. Uh, listen to Dealing with the Devil. I had the good fortune to read it. I hope it comes out as a book, too. But I'm sure the audio book's excellent. Uh, you're stuck in New York in these weird, dark times of September 2020. What else should people be reading or watching uh, to, 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 to perhaps to take more responsibility for their own lives and the future of their society and of their world? Well, uh, you know, I can't resist recommending a, a Trump book, at least one Trump book. It's not going to be fun for people to read, but well, actually it's pretty entertaining. But I believe the most underrated book that's come out about Trump is Michael Cohen's book, um, even though Michael Cohen was a scoundrel and you know has a lot to answer for, his book is remarkably rich in describing exactly what Trump does and has done over the last four years. Um, I'm I'm just looking for the name of this book here on my phone. Yeah, the other uh, book. That, uh, the if, other, if he's watching, we'll have to get him on the show. Do you know him? I don't know him, but I fully recommend that you have him on because he's got amazing stories to tell. The other book that I read uh, recently, um, like so many people, I'm home doing a lot of reading, uh, was Kurt Anderson's book, Evil Geniuses. Yeah. Kurt was um, on the show, actually, uh, last month, too. Oh, there you go. So I think that's a really um, rich picture of how we got to the place we are and um, why it is not simply all about Trump. It's a series of events, uh, both political and corporate that account for the tremendous dilemma we're in right now. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.